0: Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Again, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a chair somewhere near you. Definitely grab one so you can follow along and see the words, our Lord's words. We want to study those and nothing less as we continue in our time of worship. Matthew chapter 5 in the New Testament, by the way, towards the end, kind of towards the end of your Bible, the first book in the New Testament. Matthew 5. We'll be looking at uh, part 2 of our study of verses 21 to 26 this evening. Well, grudges, conflict, bantering. It's been said, and I don't never have seen any statistics on this, but it probably won't surprise you. Maybe some of you have heard this. It's been said that if you want to find conflict, The two places in the United States foremost in which you would find conflict are, number one, Capitol Hill, and number two, churches. Capitol Hill and churches, those are seed beds of conflict. You want to find conflict, grudges, mudslinging, go to one of those two places. Unfortunately, uh, that's often true. Our Lord, though, has something to say about that. At least as it pertains to the church, as as it pertains to people who profess His name, um, that it ought not be so. That it ought not be that way. As a matter of fact, He'll have even stronger words to say. That in effect, it's 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 um, that the existence of conflict is inevitable. On the one hand, of course, because we live in a world in between Genesis three and Revelation twenty, in a fallen world. But the doing nothing about it as far as his people is concerned, are concerned, that that, that is, is unacceptable. And so our Lord loves us, and he has very helpful words that pertain to that and other things. In this passage in Matthew 5, verse 21 to 26, in the Sermon on the Mount this evening, uh, I'm going to read, we're, we are in a um, sub-study in the Sermon on the Mount, sort of a new section that we've come to in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 20 to 48, namely. So I want to read that whole section again. I'll give a little review and background, and then we'll kind of uh, get into uh, what our Lord has to say about grudges and so on. Follow along as I read verse 20 then, Matthew chapter 5. Our Lord says this, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent outlaw while you're, with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reasons of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. You've heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you. is perfect. Well, a few minutes of review here. Some of us weren't with us last week. We're in of course the Sermon on the Mount. It's one sermon, entire sermon from Matthew 5 to the end of 7 that Jesus is preaching very frequently as he travels throughout Galilee, uh, correcting many misunderstandings on uh, what God considers a quote good person, what it takes to go to heaven if you're going to get there by your own works, and so on, God's standards of righteousness. And these kind of things, Uh, the Beatitudes, verse 3 to 12, that was sort of the introduction to the sermon, moving on to the salt and light statements, and then the statements about Jesus fulfilling the law, verses 17 through 20. Now we get to this section called the antitheses. Antitheses, these statements where Jesus says, where he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he's sort of correcting, he gives six examples. And he, of course, concludes it with that powerful statement, And verse 48. Now we're going to, because there's a very common theme in verses 20 to 48, uh, as we did last week, I'm going to briefly, a little quicker this week, give you just sort of a bird's eye view of the forest here before we dive into the trees to understand the framework here. It's very important to understand um, sort of the general idea of what's going on here uh, as we navigate through these, these six antitheses, these six example statements. You've heard it said, but I say to you. First thing, as we saw last week, Christ is holding himself up as the authority on issues of moral standards that are absolute for humanity. He holds himself up as really the the interpreter, the end-all say on these matters. He's saying, well, you've heard what it said and states some moral principle from the Old Testament or uh, the rabbis and so on. He says, but I say to you. And in the Greek, there's an emphasis each time on I, I myself I alone is the idea. I am God, in other words, is what he's saying. It's a very strong statement of of, of really deity in that sense. Number one. Number two, though Christ states some verse from the Old Testament and then says, but I say, he's not correcting the Old Testament. He's clarifying it. Uh, He is clarifying erroneous rabbinical teaching that was very common at the time. Uh, recall we talked about last week that the common language in, in, the, in this day was Aramaic. Aramaic was sort of um, like the English of the ancient East world. It was a language of commerce and business and so on. A lot of the Jews, Hebrew, had kind of gone out of style, as it were. Rabbis knew it because of the scriptures, and so they're very dependent upon the rabbinical interpretations of the Bible, the Word of God. Many of those were erroneous, as we've been talking about, we've, as we see here, as Jesus says, but I say to you. So Christ, as he quotes usually an Old Testament verse and some popular rabbinical saying, everyone, is, everyone would say, as Christ says, you've heard it said, they would all say, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that said. I hear that in synagogue every week from rabbi so-and-so, scribe, Pharisee, so-and-so. And then, but I say to you, it's sort of like, oh, rabbis aren't going to like that. A lot of correction happening. Clarification of the Old Testament, number two, third. You see in these six examples here, that are illustrations of God's moral will for us. God is concerned uh, for every part of our life, every part of our life. And that, to many of us, perhaps is no surprise. To the Jews, many of the Jews in this day who sat in synagogues, it was surprising. Because often a lot of the moral teachings they're hearing are where you, where you can go, how far you can walk, what you can carry on a certain Sabbath, what you can do on a particular um, Old Testament holiday, And so on, just sort of very outward externals. That was about it. And so for Christ to sort of not even talk about Sabbaths and Old Testament holidays here, it's it's sort of shocking as he's boiling down the essence of God's moral will and spirituality. He's talking about just every part of our life. He's not talking about a few days, places, and holidays, but motivation, intention, your thought life. Every place, every person, everywhere, all the time. Number three, fourth, to take that a little farther, relationships. God's talking, Christ is talking about relationships here. It's just interesting what he says and doesn't say. I mean, all six of these examples, you know, murder, anger, adultery, lust, divorce, making promises, speaking the truth, retaliation, and so on. They all have to do with human relationships a level of a level of life if you will that we all experience one of my professors in seminary Dr. Stuart Scott used to say he used to say men spirituality is other people and i i love that it is so profound it's so basic but so much of the new testament is about you know one another's dealing with relationships and this is where christ is showing illustrating That God's will is moral perfection on the level of relationships. And along those lines, these are things, um, these examples are those in which we experience a lot of struggle in our lives, a lot of frustration. Every one of these examples here, all of us, Jew in the first century, Gentile in the 21st, can say, oh yeah, I've done that. I've sinned in this way. I've experienced struggle and suffering in that particular area or whatever. And Christ is grabbing the mundanity of life, just where we all live. where very ordinary people, live their very ordinary lives, and holds that up and shows a moral perfection is on the one hand, and on the other showing, hey, this is where I'm going to help you. This is my moral will for God's people and where I'm going to give you strength to just live your life where you live at 99% of the time. Mundanity, relationships, fourth, fifth. It's a call to unachievable perfect holiness. That's uh, very clear as you read this, even the first example. Well, if you're if you were ever angry in your heart, Christ says even one time, that's enough to send a person to hell forever. Uh, this is a call to unachievable perfect holiness by our own strength, by our own doing. And so in that sense, this section is meant to drive us to a point where we don't really have any leg to stand on any anymore. Not that we ever did, as far as oh, I'm a I'm a pretty decent person. I'm 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 fairly righteous. This boots out all the legs from under the table, the table that would might hold up a a, presupp- a presupposed self-righteousness. Uh, uh, in other words, a morality of our own that we have none before God. This is meant to move us to despair, that even any honestly thinking person would say, okay. I have a problem before God, my unrighteousness. Fifth. However, number six, assuming we pass through number five and embrace that this is a call to unachievable perfect holiness and I have none, at the same time, number six, this is a call to achievable personal holiness. This is a call to achievable personal holiness. How is it achievable? Assuming you embrace number five, despair, despair of your lack of righteousness and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And when anybody does that, and they become a believer, become a Christian, God gives us the spirit and begins to change us. And in effect, this becomes the everyday ethic for the people of God here and beyond it's a call to achievable personal holiness then this is these um, illustrations are not for elite christians but every christian neither are they prescriptions on how to get to heaven they're descriptions of what life is to be like for those people already going there by faith in christ achievable personal holiness So still looking at the bird's eye view here of the forest, of the antitheses. Again, we boiled boiled it all down to two things. Verse 20 to 48, what's going on here. On the one hand, Jesus is showing that God's will, God's moral will, is totally unachievable. You'll You'll never live this out on your own strength. And in that sense, we're condemned before God. But on the other hand, he's saying... This is God's achievable moral will for those of you who have despaired of your lack of righteousness and embrace Christ for forgiveness of sin. That's the two big things that's happening here. Now, I want to show you quickly, as we looked at last week, just an outline of of all four, all six, excuse me, of these antitheses. In all six of these examples, here's sort of an outline of what is happening. Each time Christ. Uh, really states the unbiblical standard of righteousness taught by the scribes and pharisees well you've heard it said you know just you shall not commit murder and he really is quoting a a very just an external form of righteousness that the pharisees were teaching and then number two he says it's, it's actually below god's standard the pharisees are not achieving god's standard it's below god's standard is higher than that but i say to you that's what he does and then number three what's happening is in effect anything below God's standard renders a person guilty and condemned before God. Christ really uh, unapologetically is illustrating that there is a deep guilt, deep guilt on all humanity here. I mean, each one of these is just, I mean, we're just exposed and nailed to the wall, if we're thinking honestly. And then fourth, of course, that we would believe on Christ, and he gives further explanation and practical instruction of what God's standards looks like, showing that he desires believers to really live this out by his grace. Leave your offering at the altar and go be reconciled. And there's examples of what this looks like and so on. Overview. So then, backing up still, main idea of the Sermon on the Mount, which really states what's going on here in verse 20 to 48. Though humanity has no ability to get to heaven by our own doing, I mean, we see that in these verses, don't we? Summarized, you must be perfect. By faith in Christ, through salvation by faith in Christ, we're consequently empowered or transformed to live this ethical standard, an ethical standard characteristic of heaven, of kingdom citizens. By the grace of God, we really can do this, but only by the grace of God. And then narrowing in on verses 21 to 26, our study last week and tonight is this. In light of our inability to meet God's moral standard for what constitutes murder, anger in your heart, we must cling to Christ by faith. Again, because we have no ability to stand before God. Uh, Acceptable. So we cling to Christ by faith, both to eliminate our condemnation by God and enable our obedience to God. That's what's happening in here. So then five truths surrounding salvation are in these uh, verses here, 21 to 26. Five truths. Surrounding salvation, this outline, um, the, the, the thesis, again, it's going to be very repetitive through this study. Christ is, again, he's just kind of taking us for a walk uh, through the hallway of, to see what God means by you have to be perfect as God. So the outline in that sense is going to be real similar. Number one, we saw this, that we tend to fabricate moral standards suited for our success. We tend to fabricate moral standards that are suited for our success. This is what you see happening each time when Christ is saying, look, you've you've heard it said, and then he corrects it. He's giving a, a fabricated example of righteousness that was common from the rabbis and the Pharisees. One that was below God's standard, and then he corrects it. So we tend to fabricate these for our own righteousness, frankly, to appear something that we're not. And Christ in his love wants to expose that, so that we would come and receive an acceptable righteousness before God, which is a righteousness not by our works, by obedience to the law, but by faith in him. And so number two, we saw that God's moral standards are suited to himself. When Christ says, but I say to you, he's correcting what it means to be a good person before God or correcting God's moral standards. I say to you that these are suited to to God, to his holiness, We mustn't alter them or change them. Third, in effect, then everyone we see, everyone is guilty of falling short of God's standard. I mean, that that just becomes really clear, right? So, I mean, this sermon that Christ is preaching, especially this part, is very effective evangelism in that sense, as far as evangelism sharing, um, getting to the good news of Christ crucified for our sins, that you must be saved. Christ, notice, isn't urging people to pray a prayer, sign a card, walk an aisle, invite Jesus into their heart. He's, he's setting it up to see how badly and how much we really need him by showing our guilt before God and before the law. I mean, Christ is, you know, you're guilty over and over, you're guilty, you're guilty. You're, hell, I mean, it's evil and these kind of things. For, I mean, for things that are real, very acceptable in our society, lying and um, immoral thoughts even these kind of things, we're guilty. And then number four, the good news is where Christ would want to bring us to is that through faith in him, there's no condemnation. We love that truth, Romans 8.1. And this is where he wants to get us to. It is God's will that we would experience, feel, for lack of a better word, our guilt before God Under the law and God's moral will, in other words, in order that we would come and by faith in Christ receive the standing of no condemnation. But that is only through faith in him. Do you see that in the, do you see that how Christ is doing that here in the sermon? And then fifth tonight. Having been saved through faith in Christ and receiving no condemnation. Though Christ was condemned for us, then, through faith in Christ, uh, we're saved from condemnation. At the same time, we're saved in, through faith in Christ, we're saved for sanctification. We're saved for sanctification. This is just the beginning, Christ is saying. This is just the beginning of kingdom life, of being a kingdom citizen. A citizen of the kingdom of heaven. My people, in other words. That You see what my standards are, believe on Christ, and then you can live, start living this out. So here we are, our new material this evening. Through faith in Christ, we're saved for sanctification. Sanctification is a theological term which has the idea of, of cr- increasing Christ-likeness from the inside out, the whole person. he's giving many examples of what that looks like. And I want to make a few examples, uh, excuse me, a few observations of God's standards here. Um, this kingdom ethic that uh, I, I want to share from you for a very, a very good commentary by Charles Corliss on this section. Four quick observations as we look at that this is God's will for us as believers. First, this is, they focus on the spirit of, of the law and not merely the letter. The Pharisees are only talking about committing murder. Taking a physical life, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You got to take it way farther back than that. The spirit of the law is the motivation, the heart intention behind murder, which is anger. You're guilty even on that. Number two, internal first, external second. The God's, God's people are more concerned about moral purity of the heart than ritual purity of the hands. Number two, number three. Majors over the minors. These examples of God's moral will focus on majors over the minors. In other words, majors, things like humility, self-denial, biblical love, sexual purity, self-control, truthfulness, majors, over the minors where minors Pharisees are focusing on minors like how far to walk on a Sabbath you know m- music the, the 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 color of the of the wall correct posture when praying and so on third fourth these focus on God's character in God's commands they focus on God's character in God's commands it that when Christ takes, shows that the moral fences are all the way back to your intentions, that says something uh, about the nature of God's moral will, that it comes out of godly character. It's not just an outward jumping over a, a, a sort of a moral bar, that this has to come from a divine character inside a person, which can only happen if you're saved, of course. Second Peter puts it this way, that we have part, we're partakers of the divine nature. The new birth. So Sanctification. Now, this particular area of sanctification, of godliness, in which we're focusing on has to do um, as we started out saying in the introduction, biblical conflict resolution. Biblical conflict resolution. This just they were not expecting to hear this. Couple Comments on that, we'll get to um, several notes on conflict resolution here in a minute, but it's inevitable. Conflict is inevitable, we know that. It's hard. The presence of conflict doesn't automatically mean that something is bad necessarily. It could be conflict is sometimes necessary to bring about peace. These things are difficult, these kind of situations. And, and this, is, we're just going to do a quick flyby here. This might raise more questions than it answers. That's okay. Um, if you haven't been through our biblical conflict resolution study in our GCs, even if you have and you have more questions about different scenarios, please come talk to us, some of the gospel community leaders. We have lots of resources on that. Well, and under point five then on sanctification. I just want to make five or so quick observations on conflict resolution for God's people. Very basic but profound stuff here. That is just I mean, this is this is applicable for everyday life. The the place where you live life, though we try to escape it. Because of pride, we, 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 we want to eject from the mundanity and think that think that we're better than that or whatever. But anyhow, number one is this very simple. It's a huge priority, genuine. Biblical peace is a huge priority among God's people, of course. It is a huge priority. Let's look at the example Jesus gives here. Verse 23, therefore, Matthew five twenty-three. Please follow along as I read this. This is a, a very interesting scene. That Christ paints. If you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first to be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Very interesting here. Christ, remember, is speaking to people in Galilee. The place where an offering would be brought to the altar is Jerusalem at the temple where the sacrificial animal would be brought to atone for sins. That's 80 miles from, from Galilee. People from Galilee would travel to Jerusalem to offer their offering at the altar a couple times a year maybe. Christ is saying, you Galileans, if you've traveled 80 miles to this very important place, very important day, and you remember that something has, someone has something against you, you need to go deal with it right away. Travel back those 80 miles. It's a huge priority. Genuine biblical peace. He paints a situation Jesus does here. Someone who truly worships God, loves God, knows God. As such, he assumes in the illustration that they take personal relationships very seriously. And therefore, genuine biblical peace. Leave it there, man. Oh, but, but the Pharisees always taught me that, you know, I mean, the animals, and they are important. But Jesus says... I want love and humility and genuine peace among my people because it's just a huge priority. Notice a couple things about this. Look back at verse 23. There and there you remember, he says, that your brother has something against you. You remember. Again, this inward, there, there's a sense of inward holiness here. To remember that your brother has something against you such that you'd be like, oh man, I, I gotta go deal with that." that. That's a righteousness that is inside, that is... Sparked by the Holy Spirit that's inward. A true godliness that can't be faked. So they have this righteous reaction to go. Now, leave it at the altar, go. What's going on here? A couple things. First, what this does not mean. What Christ is not saying as far as a priority of biblical conflict, resolution, and peace. First, he's not saying you need to get everyone to like you. He's not saying you need to get everyone to like to like you if jesus was saying that then jesus was constantly in sin a lot of people didn't like him it's, it's some it's that actually notice some someone has something against you if our goal is ensuring that everyone likes us then we're in idolatry uh, we worship ourselves um, that's that's self-praise that's self-congratulation it's the pursuit of, of self-celebration really you want everyone to celebrate you and it's 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 rank idolatry. That's not the goal here. It's to love others. Pursue genuine peace. Second, what Jesus is not teaching here is that we need to chase down everyone that's offended by us. Jesus is not saying you need to chase everyone down that's offended. Again, if he was saying that, then again, Jesus is in major sin. People are constantly offended at him. It might be that. but it isn't necessarily that. And just in the Beatitudes, a few verses earlier, Christ said in verse 10 to 10, 12, look, a lot of people are going to hate you and be angry at you because of me and because of righteousness. So be it. We don't want that, but it happens. Third, what Jesus is not teaching, he's not teaching that if you can't resolve every conflict, you're in sin. He's not teaching that. He is not saying that if you can't resolve every conflict, then you're in sin. The idea of the verse here is Romans 12 18, the parallel. We'll put it up here. If if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Which it, it that's an active thing. That's not just sitting there and oh, it's I can't. You know, Christ will give some he'll give some more principles here. If possible, as it depends on you, that's the idea here, be at peace. Christ did everything possible, being perfect, to make peace with everyone, dying on the cross, for one thing. Number two, being perfect, perfectly loving people for another. But often it wasn't possible because people loved their sin more than they loved Christ and God. If possible. This is the underlying theme through this whole um, passage. Again, this implies that there's good reason for someone, to have, uh, for, so, for someone to have something against us. How do we know that? Because Christ, notice back in verse 23, actually commands us, go, be reconciled. That implies that there is something in between, some sin, some offense, whatever, actually, biblically speaking, such that peace needs to be made. Be reconciled, the Greek word there means, means actively you go and do what it takes, as much as you can, to make biblical peace. Be reconciled. It's a huge priority, biblical peace. Now, underlying all this, as we kind of saw back in point four of the forgiveness of sins, it's it's a huge priority, theologically speaking, because of the gospel. Again, this is for God's people. God's people have been the recipients of the greatest peacemaking act in the universe. That we are born and en- as enemies of God. Humanity, that's no secret in the Bible, we bo- were born enemies of God, shaking our fist at God. That humanity is unwilling and unable to obey, therefore be at peace with God. We love our sin naturally, but God is motivated by his own love and his own compassion and his own mercy from eternity past to say, though they are my enemies, though they deserve my wrath, I... I will come down, and at my own expense, the expense of my son, I will incur the wrath that should be inflicted justly or just be fair upon my enemies. And I'll send my son to absorb all that wrath so that my self-declared willing enemies might be at peace with me. And I'll make peace with them so that they can have amnesty and mercy and forgiveness and can be made from enemies to my children, not by their doing, but by my doing, by the death of my son. The gospel is everything here. That's why peacemaking in the people of God is such a priority. Because they've been recipients of a great act of peacemaking. As Romans 5.1 says, therefore having been justified, declared righteous, in other words, declared to have a righteousness that is acceptable to God, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the gospel. So much more than, a friend, invite Jesus into your heart. No, dear friend, you need to make peace with God because you're his self-proclaimed, self-willing enemy. But he's offered a way for you to be right. This is why it is a huge priority. It's a tragedy then, when on the one hand, as God's people, we profess profess ourselves Christians, when you profess yourself to be, I am a Christian, you are declaring yourself to have been the recipient, of the greatest peacemaking act in the universe. So it's a tragedy when we profess that on one hand and on the other, when we fail to do everything insofar as it depends on us to be at peace with all people. Uh, that, that's just a huge, glaring um act of hypocrisy huge unacceptable to the lord this is a huge priority and and it really could go both ways here if i have something in my heart where i'm you know i can't i'm not overlooking an offense with someone i'm taking into account a wrong suffered first corinthians 13 i'm i'm clinging to something against someone or i know someone has something against me and i just kind of sit around and just kind of simmer in that. Oh, it's a great sin. Oh, this is a great sin for those who would profess to be a Christian. What a, a tragedy it is. Brothers and sisters, those of you who know Christ, that cannot be. It might be acceptable in, you know, in Christendom at large, but this cannot be. It is not acceptable with the Lord of Christendom. It is. Ha- it has to be resolved insofar as it depends on us. Or we are... Rank hypocrites, and in sin. Oh yeah, water under the bridge, time will heal. Those are pagan ideas. Time doesn't heal forgiveness and reconciliation does by the gospel. That's how it works. Now, taking this a bit further. Huge priority. It's a huge priority for believers. And and and. I, well, let me say this. The two biggest areas in which this is a huge priority are, number one, the local church. Number one, the local church. And number two, marriage. Number one, the local church. Number two, marriage. First, the local church because, because the local church, it is to be the New Testament hints and indicates, not hints, straight up shows it in so many ways that the local church is to be the showcase of the world to the glory of God and the greatness of Christ. That the local church is to be the sanctuary uh, of heaven on earth. It's to be an outpost of heaven on earth and a refuge. Sanctuary, not in the sense of the building, but the people and the relationships that happen there. That the relationships that happen in any given local church are to be a refuge to other people in the world where just things like, you know, gossip, um, slander, hate, anger, selfishness, superficiality. Those things were normal in the world, oh, but not this little local church where it's a refuge because the gospel is there. And it's embraced and lived out. Forty-one and others are to be these You know These plays that the church runs. The chief one another, of course, is John 13, 34, and 35. We cannot hear this enough. Um, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And the Greek word for one another means another person of the same kind, other believers. And like what D.A. Carson says about this verse, he says, it's not that we're to love uh, unbelievers less, it's that we're to love believers more. By all the by all this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And there's 39 other one another's. We say this often. The one another's are the playbook for the local church. A local church who isn't tr- really exerting themselves to practice the one another's. You're like a football team that huddles, ready, break, and you don't run a play ever. You're not a football team. I don't know what you are, but you're not a football team. You're hypocrites or something. There's a responsibility to receiving the gospel. That's a joy. So the local church, one of the chief places where it's a huge priority, number two, marriage. Marriage, because marriage is a metaphor for what? Ephesians 5.25. The gospel, Christ in the church. It's, it's explicitly stated in there. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then Paul kind of exposits and paints that. So this is a place where biblical peace is just an absolute huge priority. Doing everything that depends on us, I should say, is a huge priority. Does this mean that if there is not constant peace, then we're failing? Not necessarily. One spouse may attempt biblical conflict resolution. The other might not be feeling it. It's just, it's life. It's hard. But we strive for the peace, Hebrews twelve fourteen. Huge priority. Again, sometimes conflict is necessary to bring about true peace. One. Second, just a few observations here. Second, it's a must for every believer. Pursuing peace is a must for every believer. Pursuing peace is a must for every believer. Brothers and sisters, I, I man, regular cornerstone regulars, I, I just plead with us to, to embrace this. If we're going to claim that we've received the high, again, high gift, the huge gift of going, oh, I'm going to heaven. We, we must, all of us, embrace this priority and be about it. It's a huge priority. It's a must for every believer, number two. Christ, again, he's painting the scene here. There's no sense in which he's talking only to, you know, church leadership or some type of believer who's sort of ele- elevated in, you know, gold medal Christianity. This is just all of us. If you're at the altar, that would be anybody. Um, Verse 25, make friends quickly. Anybody and everybody. The qualification for a person to attempt biblical conflict resolution is not some college degree, but the forgiveness of sins. Have you received the forgiveness of sins? Yes, then you're qualified and commissioned even to attempt everything. Not the two out of twelve things, but everything to pursue peace God's way. Leave your offering at the altar. Go, be reconciled. And again, even when you are faithful at this, it, 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 it's this isn't an end-all promise that it's always going to result in perfect peace. It's not going to. I mean, just look at the life of Christ. Look at Paul. I mean, Christ does things perfectly. Things often just get ugly. But again, this is the priority in the body of Christ So that every believer. This assumes people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who loves the Word of God and wants it to be applied. So with resolving conflict as a must for every believer, These in verse 24 here with leaving your gift at the altar to bring this all together. This this assumes that God, um, that living a uh, living out such a life, it means involves more than a concern for attending a corporate worship gathering. That that is important, very important. That's a concern as we talked about at the beginning about the beginning of relationships with people, especially relationships with believers. That I am diligent to attempt and get equipped to know how to do biblical conflict resolution with. The identity, child of God, comes and mandate to get good at and proficient at and equipped for peacemaking, God's way. That's why we have a Bible and that's why we have the Spirit. You know, sometimes we think, man, these things are so hard. I just I can't do that. You know, I'm I'm no scholar, I'm no whatever. This is just too hard. Friend, this is why you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit because living this out is impossible on your own. That's why you're equipped with the Holy Spirit of God to obey the ethics of God. That's like the chief reason, along with regeneration, illumination, sanctification, and so on. I know it's really hard, but putting ourselves in the place of hard, trying in our imperfect efforts is where Spirit kicks in. But if you don't try, then we're not going to experience that power of the Holy Spirit. To help us do biblical conflict resolution and see the blessings of it, especially within the body of Christ. That's why you are equipped and outfitted with nothing less than God himself. God hasn't left you orphaned and without the right gear. He loves us. Be reconciled. It's a great priority. It's a must for all of, the, all of us. Now. Lay your gift at the altar, go. Sometimes this verse is applied to say, Well, I guess I better not go to church then. Uh I I you know, he tells them to leave the temple. By modern application that means, well, if I know that something has some some uh someone has something against me, or if I have something against someone, then I better not go to church. Um, that almost has a maybe not even almost sometimes, can have a false piety underneath it. This verse, really, this verse has much less to do with going to church and must much more to do with a humble urgency and expediency to resolve conflict or attempt to. Remember, again, Christ is focusing on the heart. You might, you might have a situation in which someone with whom you're in conflict lives 2,000 miles away and they can't talk to you till Monday and it's Saturday. Oh, should I stay home? Of course not. Go to church. Get equipped. and And... You know, resolve before God. Okay, Monday, we're, I'm on the phone. We're gonna, I'm gonna make an attempt. Plus, it's a command to gather with God's people for corporate worship. Hebrews 10:24 10, 10, and 25. Christ wouldn't have us obey one command at the expense of another. Right? It's the idea of quickly go, and again, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. This is hard. I like what Piper says about this. John Piper, he says, human reconciliation is harder than financial donation. In other words, it's easier to kind of show up sometimes and throw something in there than it is to reconcile relationships, but it's a must for every believer. Now, as such, a must for every believer Just under this point, a lot of subpoints here tonight, I apologize for that, but it's a very rich text. Um, four quick things, five quick things on, okay, how do we do that? If you've never heard of this conflict resolution stuff before, ways that we go and be reconciled. Number one, we go by preparing our heart. We go by preparing our heart, getting the log out of our own eye. Humility. I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to listen, even to listen to something difficult. Yeah. You know what? Someone might say, I do have something against you. And Christ isn't promising that we won't be spoken to firmly or sometimes even sinned against when we go. He just says you I don't care you go anyways first second, ask questions start by asking questions and putting them on yourself and you might say something like man i've I've sensed that there might be some a lack of gospel unity between us have i have I sinned against you have I how, how how might I have contributed to that? How might I have sinned? How might I have offended? Whatever, ask questions by putting it on yourself for a second. Third, honestly confess sin. If some if if, if a legitimate sin is pointed out, honestly confess it. Just deal with it. Christ has already died for it. Big deal. Yeah, you're right. Genuinely, of course. Third, fourth. Quickly and sincerely ask forgiveness. And then fifth, reaffirm the relationship. Fifth, reaffirm the relationship. You might, I mean, (laughs) you might find yourself, if you've been like me sometimes, having to do this, like a couple times a day, all the time. But that's okay. We get to go to heaven. Right? Though this is very hard and humbling, we get to go to heaven. And so we can do this by the power of the Spirit. You would know, ask, hey, are we unified again? Are we at peace? Is there actual peace here? If the person says, yes, believe the best, and move on. And don't dwell on it anymore. It's a must for every believer. Third, very quickly, just humility. We kind of talked a lot about this. Third principle of conflict resolution. It just requires lots and lots of humility. Jesus in this passage is assuming a true humility in the worshiper. That's why the person, first of all, well that's why they're first genuinely worshiping God in the you know to begin with but second why they would remember have that inward response oh oh my goodness there's some lack of unity with my brother or my sister that's that's a manifestation of humility and then going is a manifestation of humility because that's hard and we often don't want to and we're prideful and then doing all that stuff we just talked about it just takes humility he's he's saying this basically you need to be really bothered by two things. Number one, a a lack of biblical unity with your brothers and sisters. Like we need to be bothered by that. You know, insofar as we've contributed to that, even if we haven't. And second, we need to be really bothered by our own sin. By our own sin. That as I go, I am more bothered by my own sin than that of another. That's just to be a normal attitude of a believer then oh, my sins are way more irritating to me than others. I mean, as such, he's just nailing the Pharisees to the wall here. Right? Humility, fourth. Obedience over comfort. Fourth mark of biblical conflict resolution, obedience over comfort. Obedience over comfort. Obedience over comfort, because it's just—I mean, this is uncomfortable to to go and hash these things out. Sometimes, isn't it? it? Can just be like, oh man. But but notice in Christ saying, make friends quickly, leave your offering. The the you know the this immediacy of it, I guess, shows that the worshiper prioritizes his glory and his and, and obe- obeying more than just is this going to be uncomfortable or not? That's really like a Tertiary issue here. Less than that. Fourth, fifth, expediency. Biblical conflict resolution requires expediency. I mean, again, you see that in the text, don't you? I mean, in mid, laying the lamb there. Such a sacred, important act that this was in temple worship in Old Testament times. In mid, laying it there, oh no, leave it, go. That's expedient. Christ, it's interesting, for the Old Testament here in worshiper, Christ picks the most sacred situation and the most sacred moment of that situation and says, right in that moment, go quickly. He couldn't pick a more, a situation in those times for those years in which you would not expect interruption, even a command to be interrupted. Expediency. This means when we're, if, if I'm holding something against someone, or I think someone might be against me, you, we don't have to say things like, well, I'm going to pray about if I should go to that person. I'll pray about it, friend. You know, you don't have to pray about it. That, that can often be a cloak, a cover-up for, I don't really want to, so I'm going to appear pious anyways. You don't need to pray about something that God's told you to do, especially if he's told you to go this quickly. God's already prayed about it for you. He loves you. We can just by his grace go immediately, immediately. Granted, we might have to pray as we go for our heart and these kind of things, but we can just, that's why, again, that's why we have the Holy Spirit to help us through those things. And then sixth, expediency number six, consequences. Six consequences result from not attempting peace. Consequences result, verse 25 and 26, from not attempting peace consequences look at verse 25 make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and he'd be thrown into prison truly i say to you you'll not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent so christ paints a civil lawsuit scene of the day a serious one again this is an illustration in which there is some actual infraction against another such that the law could legitimately punish that infraction. And it's a severe punishment. I mean, a big fine and some jail time. It's a substantial punishment. And so the big idea here that Christ is painting for his Old Testament hearers is that there are often grave consequences for not attempting peace. Therefore, again, be expedient about doing so. Grave consequences. The greatest, to bring this full all the way into the New Testament, the greatest consequence is that the glory of Christ and the gospel is misrepresented. That he's marred. That all men won't know that we're his disciples because we're not loving as he is loved. That's the greatest consequence. That Christ isn't getting the full glory in the gospel and the witness that he should have among those who profess his name. That is the worst consequence. Second consequence, of course, that there's, You know, there might be some unnecessary bickering, disunity, whatever going on, because we haven't insofar as it depended on us pursued peace with all men. To wrap it up, Christ is saying, as far as this kingdom ethic here for God's people, we are in great error, like Pharisee level error. If we think that we can proceed on with our life as if it's pleasing to God, yet have not done what depends on us to pursue peace. Whether we have something against someone or we sense that others might. for Again, for an actual biblical infraction that we've committed. We're in great error. And so on the one hand, backing up then. Big picture. I mean, these standards, your anger, and from that anger in your heart results unnecessary conflict sometimes. You're guilty for even hell, Christ said in verse 22. Those are standards, I mean, that's just unachievable, perfect holiness, that we're totally guilty. But there is forgiveness from God by believing on Christ who died for our sins. I pray that you would do that tonight if you don't know him. It's free gift by faith. And then as you do, and on the other hand, this is real life stuff. That the God of glory would have those of us who know him embrace so that all men might know that we're his disciples. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've done what it takes, what was required to remove Our guilty standing, not by us, Lord, but by your love, you have done this through your death, and we praise you. Lord, I pray if anyone in here isn't saved tonight, that they would receive your great love by faith and embrace you, Jesus, and cry out to you for forgiveness. Lord, and the rest of us that, oh, Lord, if we have anything legitimately against something that we can't let love cover or overlook, or if we think that we've sinned against someone, Lord, let us. Please, by your spirit help us to go expediently and do what we can insofar as it depends on us jesus that your name might shine for your glory we pray amen